When we are born, we are completely and utterly dependent on our parents for everything. If you get thirsty as a kid, you scream until somebody sorts it out for you, right? As we grow up, though, we learn to satisfy our own needs, to take care of ourselves, don't we? And as parents, we're pretty, pretty chuffed when our kids figure out how to look after themselves a little bit, don't we? Are we who's, who's been a parent and is happy to see when their kids learn how to take care of themselves and their own needs? I'm all for it, except for the times when my kids decide to satisfy their own needs and then put the empty milk bottle back in the fridge. I go to get some milk and it doesn't satisfy my thirst. And you know what happens when I can't get my coffee in the morning? Does anyone want to get... No, we probably won't. It's not confession time. But it's not a good thing. But, you know, generally speaking, we learn how to satisfy our own thirst and our own needs and our own requirements. Now, this Easter, we are going to focus on a number of encounters with Jesus. Um, as we said, a number of people who feature in the Bible stories who sometimes did some pretty strange things after they'd met and seen Jesus. So today we look at this uh, woman at the well. Uh, it is the longest single conversation Jesus has with anybody in Scripture, uh, which I find a little bit interesting, you know, those of you who are trivia buffs. And if there is one thing that would characterise this woman, one word you could use, it is thirsty. There's a whole lot of modern slang connotations to that word and, and as far as I'm aware, they kind of fit. She was thirsty. And when we describe, when we say this woman is thirsty, we, we don't mean about water, necessarily. I mean, she was, she came to the well, right? But she was thirsty for what uh, modern psychologists and sociologists describe. She was thirsty for a deep sense of love and belonging. And it's not just her. This, this thirst that, that we're talking about, this this thirst is, is a need for love and belonging that is part of the human experience. All human beings need it. All human beings have to wrestle with how to get it. Here's how Brené Brown describes it, one of my favourite authors. A deep sense of love and belonging is an irreducible need of all people. We are biologically, cognitively, physically and spiritually wired to love, to be loved and to belong. When those needs are not met, we don't function as we are meant to. We break, we fall apart, we numb, we ache, we hurt others, we get sick. And the problem is that we're not always that great and not always that wise when we try and take care of our own thirsts, our own desire for love and belonging. We don't always, ignore, we don't always fully understand what we need or how we're trying to get it. The woman at the well tried to take care of her own needs. She tried to satisfy her need for love and belonging with numerous guys, numerous relationships, desperately from guy to guy, trying to fill a void which was never filled. People still do dumb things, searching for connectedness and belonging in all sorts of ways. From young people doing illegal things with a bad group of friends because they think it will make them cool and make them feel like they belong more in the group. People who start taking drugs and alcohol or gambling to try and avoid the numb and the ache that comes from feeling a lack of love and connection. 
People turn to pornography more than ever and other sexual activities to try and feel that sense of love and belonging. Or they go from relationship to relationship, searching for connectedness and belonging in all the wrong ways. That's the way humanity has been and is. (laughs) So then we can talk about social media, right? Social media is a lot more media and a lot less social than I think we know. It is the perfect place for false connectedness. And it's lulling people into a false sense of connectedness. People are spending more time on their phones than face-to-face. And it shows in the way our society is developing. So Jesus' words, Jesus' teaching, Jesus' example in in this story show us clearly that salvation is about connectedness love and connectedness with God, because God is the only true source of love. So, we're going to take, take our time going through this story and exploring different aspects of it. Um, there are a number of times where we've looked at this story and, and different aspects get drawn out. It's a very long conversation and Jesus says a lot of really good things, but we're going to draw out particularly what Jesus says about love, belonging and connection. So, we'll switch to the NIV. Okay, yep, we're good. So, John 4 verse 7 is the beginning of this encounter. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? Jesus meets a woman at a well in Samaria at midday and he talks to her. There's a number of things about this that should make us stop and and pause for a moment. And certainly, anyone who read this in the first century when it was written would have stopped and went, hey, that is really, really weird. There's a number of things about this that we need to understand. First of all, as it explains in the text, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. They really did. There was a lot of racial conflict, even though they were kind of the same race, but anyhow, they they, they were related in, in distant ways, so... Uh, but they still hated each other. Uh, In many ways, you could compare it to the conflict that exists now between the Palestinians and the Jews, only that the Samaritans are actually quite related. Actually, did you know there's still Samaritans around? Still people who uh, practice the ways of the Samaritans and um, have a a different set of scriptures slightly to what the Jews have? Anyhow, that's interesting. Um, Where was I going? Yeah, right, so they, they would be at open conflict with the Samaritans, if it wasn't for the fact that the Roman Empire had conquered Israel, and so they wouldn't let you. If you started, if you started any sort of violence, they would brutally kill you. That's how they kept the peace. But, so, we, we, we need to understand that these guys hated each other. It is, it's a remarkable event that Jesus would choose to go through Samaria, let alone stop and talk to anybody. So, that's the first thing we note. The second thing to note is, Jesus is a guy, the woman at the well is a woman, they shouldn't talk. Cultural understanding is that men don't talk to women in public. Rarely, perhaps if it's your wife or your daughter or someone like that, that's okay perhaps, but certainly never ever would a man talk to a woman in public. So that's a bit weird. Thirdly, It's midday. What is a woman doing at the well 
at midday. That's remarkable. And, and if you've been around this story before, you'll know that it's because she was ostracized by others. She avoided the company of others. She withdrew from society because, you see, society would come to the well in the morning or in the afternoon when it's cooler. The water doesn't evaporate. It's not as hard. It's not as hot. It's far more efficient to come in the morning and the evening, but she's there in the middle of the day. That's remarkable and weird. And yet Jesus talks to her. As we, we heard, she has multiple husbands and all that sort of things, and, and in today's language, she would have been slut-shamed, completely ostracized. And yet, Jesus talks to her. That's remarkable and strange. But you see, what it does is it shows us that Jesus completely disregards the racism, the sexism, and the moral elitism of the day. That time of history in that part of the world is characterized by social ladders and ranks and social standing and this and that and whatever else. And of course, as I said, it's, it's characterized by racism. Jesus cuts through all of that and connects, offers connection to this woman. Time and time again, throughout the life of Jesus, we see that he explains and he demonstrates that it doesn't matter who you are, what you have, or what people have done to you, or what you've done to other people. It doesn't matter where you are on any social ladder or any racial divide. It doesn't matter what labels people have put on you or what labels you've put on yourself. God reaches out for connection with you. Time and time again. And then he offers her living water. You know, she complains, right? You haven't, you know... Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That was his response to her incredulous reply, her shocked response to him asking her for water. And he says, oh, oh, oh I'll offer you living water. Living water is, a, is an interesting metaphor, isn't it? I like it as a metaphor. It kind of works. We are Who's the biologist in the room? Over 70% water? Is that right? In our physical body, 70, 73%? That's a lot of water. There is no single substance you need more for life than H2O. I have a friend this week who was diagnosed with a, a level of vitamin deficiency. Vitamin D. Does anyone know what vitamin D is? Oh, whatever, you can come tell me later. But anyway, it doesn't matter what what deficiencies you have, if you have a deficiency of H2O, that's a big deal. If you run out of H2O, you're going to die in a couple of days, pure and simple. It's a big deal. We'll sing that song, final song for the day. Uh, Jesus is saying something different. Jesus is saying, I have something for your soul. I have something your soul desperately needs and will die without. It is as important to your inner soul as water is to your physical body. Took the old records off the shelf. 
sit and listen to him by myself. Um, John, John 4, 13 to 14, Jesus continues, everyone who drinks the water from this well is going to get thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. They'll never get thirsty. Not this kind of water, not this kind of thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Think about what it would mean for someone to have a spring of water in the middle of the desert. If you live in a desert community, you know more often than not what happens when someone runs low on water. You begin to get really anxious about where you're going to get your next glass of water from. You begin to get quite tired. Your muscles stop working as well as they do. Your tongue starts to expand. Your mind loses its focus. And what Jesus is saying so I've got something for your soul that will take away the anxiety, it will give you hope, it will give you focus, it will give you strength. It's living water. It is refreshing to the soul. <laughs> well, obviously, the woman responds saying, I'll have what you're offering, that sounds good to me. I don't think she fully understands what he's talking about, but she's like, yep, bring it on. And then Jesus says something really strange, doesn't he? He says, go and call your husband and come back. That's really strange. When you first think of it, some commentators say that this is like the guy, the woman who takes her car to the, to the uh, a mechanic, the wife who takes her car to the mechanic and the mechanic says, oh, go call your husband, I need to talk to him about what's wrong with the car. You know, they kind of think this is really sexist thing going on, what Jesus is doing here. He's like, right, this stuff is too deep for you women to understand, bring your husband and I'll talk to him about it. Don't think so. In fact, she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You're right. When you say you've no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands and the man, you have, the man you're with now isn't your husband. What you've said is quite true. That's a ridiculous side comment, isn't it? It doesn't seem to fit in the rest of the story. It seems like Jesus has gone off on this tangent. But she recognizes that he's a prophet. She recognizes he is a prophet. It's one of the few times in the scriptures where people recognize Jesus as a prophet to his face in conversation. And note, prophecy here is not about telling the future, it's about revealing the presence in the light of God's grace. Because what Jesus is doing here is highlighting her lack of love and belonging her failed attempts to hotwire the hardwired need in her life as, a, as, in opposite, as, a, as an opposite to what he is offering, love and connection to God. She, she recognizes he's a prophet. She now understands it. It's the opposite to what they were just talking about. She's stunned that Jesus knows this information. She's uncertain. She understands what Jesus is saying. She understands that what Jesus is offering is, is what she's always been looking for in the relationships that he's just highlighted. She understands that. She understands that he's talking about a connection that brings life and, and refreshment to a soul. That same thing she was looking for. But she has, a, she has one, some, one, one problem left. This prophet messenger of God, clearly a messenger of God, is a Jew. And there's a problem with that. 
a real problem with that. The primary reason for the split, other than the racial basis, was the fact that the Jews believed that you should worship God in the temple, that God's presence on the earth rested in that place and only that place. And the Samaritans were walled off from being going there, and so the Samaritans built their own temple at Mount Gerizim, a much more ancient place, in fact, a place that Benjamin, uh, the tribes of Benjamin, anyway, whatever, go on. So, the Jews say the only way to connect with God, the only way to have a true relationship with God is to be in that temple, and she is a Samaritan and locked off from any sense of connection with God because she's not allowed to go there. Jesus says, the time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and the truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and His worshippers must must worship the Spirit and in truth. Worship in the Spirit and in truth. So Jesus says, this this prophet, she recognises Him as a prophet, says, not only the the, the, the centuries-old division between Jews and Samaritans, No, that will not separate you from being connected to God. The time is coming and the time has now come. In fact, in in John's Gospel, uh, in, in the original languages, the word is the hour has come. The hour has come. And every time in John's Gospel where it says the hour has come, Jesus is referring to His crucifixion on the cross. So Jesus says the time is coming, the time has now come where that will not matter anymore. There will be no prevention to your connection to the Almighty. She's like, well, that sounds great, but we'll have to see what happens when the Messiah comes. We'll have to see what the Messiah says. Both the Jews and the Samaritans have the same heritage, the same religious backgrounds, the same upbringing, the the point of difference being where to worship and that sort of stuff was different, but other than that, very similar. They both believed in the Messiah. They both believed in this prophetic figure that would come and would set everything straight, that would bring peace and connection and cohesion to the nation of Israel. So she says, we'll, okay, okay, that sounds great, but we'll just have to wait and see what happens when the Messiah comes, what He says, because He's the one who's going to make it all happen. And then Jesus says, I, the one who is speaking to you, I am He. That's a heavy thing to to lay on someone, right? You just had this whole conversation and suddenly they say, I'm the Messiah. And wouldn't you know it? Timing, right? Just at that moment, the disciples come back, bringing lunch. It's annoying, right? Don't you find that's annoying? Their timing isn't always great. I want to hear where the conversation goes. But they come back, they look at her weird, they think it's a bit awkward, she feels awkward, obviously leaves the water jar there, the whole point of coming out there. She leaves the water jar there and heads back to town. Heads back to town. Mulling over this idea that this guy, this, this prophet, this could be the Messiah. She goes to people in the town and she says to them, look, come and come out and see this guy, come and see this guy who told me everything I, I, I did. Right? So he's a prophet, come and see him, he's a prophet, told me everything I ever did and he, and, and he claims to be the Messiah, could it be? I mean, the stuff he said, if it's true, if he is, 
Now, there is no chance that anyone in that town would listen to anything she said, except for the fact, and in fact, it's unlikely that she would have said anything to anybody anyway. Remember, she came out to the well to avoid anybody in the middle of the day. And yet here she is, she goes back, and they actually listen to her. And I think they listen to her because, because she's changed. She has a new confidence. She has a new, a new hope. She has a, a new conviction. A new, she has a new, a new joy. And they think this is remarkable. Something happened in this encounter with Jesus. And so, they, they head out there, and if you read the this text uh, continuing, they, uh, a whole bunch of people come out from the town, and they invite Jesus to stay with them for a couple of days. And Jesus does, he, he, stay, he and the disciples stay there for a couple of days, and they teach, and they do healings, and so on, and by the end of that time with them, they are convinced that He is the Messiah. That what He says, that no longer will there be anything that can separate them from the love of God. They begin and they believe and their lives are changed. <laughs> We're in a slightly posi different position, aren't we? We know Jesus is the Messiah. We are going to celebrate Easter in a couple of weeks and we're going to commemorate the death of Jesus on the cross and we will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus to a, three days later. We will see interactions He had with people after He was resurrected, with disciples, with Thomas, with Peter, with Paul, with others. We will see how He walked and talked and ate with a couple of guys on a road to a town called Emmaus. We're going to look at all these times where Jesus was eyewitness, where people ate with Him, saw Him, learned from Him in the times after He, was die he, after he died. That's pretty unusual. We also have the benefit of thousands of years of history in which people have acknowledged Jesus died for them and their lives have been changed and transformed. 